I'm Dominic Moyo, and today I get to sit down with Stephen Durrance and talk a little bit about HRC and specifically the Grand. We hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast, celebrating hunting dog heritage, competition, and community. United Kennel Club has been the hunting dog sports home for coonhounds, beagles, retrievers, pointers, cur feist, and more for over 125 years. This podcast is fueled by Yukonuba, the official performance dog nutrition partner of UKC. Dominic Moyo, and I'm the Hunt, Test, and Field Trial Program Manager for United Kennel Club. And one of the uh, sports that I get to oversee is HRC Retriever Hunt Test. Uh, I'm joined here today with Stephen Durrance, and he is the owner and operator of Taylor Farm Kennels. Now, if anyone's been around upper level hunt tests or just hunt tests in general, you've probably run into Stephen at some point. Uh, I've had the pleasure of bumping into him at SRSs, Grands, and uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here with him today, and we're going to pick his brain just a little bit about HRC, about the Grand, and about some of the dogs that have come out of his program a little bit, and just training in general, and uh, working retrievers. So, Stephen, if you don't mind, say, say a little bit about yourself for people who aren't as familiar with you and, and things they ought to know. Um, again, I'm Stephen Durrance. I'm from big town of Sylvania, Georgia. I was born and raised here. My family goes back many, many generations on this property itself. Um, it's been a working farm. I, I, I wouldn't even know how long, but I have found another way to utilize the land. Um, farming's not exactly, not exactly what it used to be. It's changed so much in so many different ways and it was either evolve with it or find another way to use the land. Um, I've always loved outdoors. I've loved the land. I've loved I've had connection to the property and I've loved animals. So those, those all kind of work together towards moving me towards dogs and, and an outdoor life. I, I never dreamed that I'd get to, to train dogs for a living, especially not part of the world I live in, especially waterfowl hunting is not, is not a thing, but it's a it's a it's a rich hunting culture. There are other avenues that people use um, retrievers, and it's the world has gotten seemingly smaller with social media and everything else. You know, it, it's I mean, go go hunting in Arkansas and see how many Georgia plates you see. I mean, there's it, people travel to hunt. That they're they're addicted to the hunt to the hunting as much as they are to the dogs, and so somehow or another, that's all parlayed into Taylor Farm Kennels. Taylor Farms is, is my mother's namesake, so that's kind of how the whole name arrived. Yeah, I always kind of wondered about that myself. Um, you know, when did when did Taylor Farm Kennels start? When, when was the the genesis for that? Well, I bought I bought my first retriever when I was a senior in college. Mom, my wife and I were dating at the time. I couldn't have a, a puppy in the dorm. Uh, Allie was born in February. I think she was born on Valentine's Day, actually. But um, for so March, somewhere around April, we probably got her. She stayed with she stayed with Kendra because I couldn't have her at college um, until I got done. And 
graduated with big aspirations and also a big love um, for a two-legged and a four-legged girl. And uh, I quickly got obsessed, I mean, with, with retriever training, the, 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 the process of it, the, the mindset behind it. And so I was, I owned my own business. I was working my way to, towards med school. Um, I asked Kendra's, Kendra's father if I could marry her. And he, he said, you know, she was the youngest. She's the youngest of three. I'm the youngest of three. I was afraid he was going to get biblical and say, first marry my elder daughter. Um, that was <laughs> not going to work out for either one of us. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to have a, a way to, to experience the land, experience my family and still be able to provide. That was why I was headed towards medical school. Um, but life kind of started rolling in a different directions. I, I became obsessed with dogs. Kendra and I got married. Um, I had another business, a decorative concrete business that, that I was working my way through school um, utilizing. And it, it just kind of evolved into that. So to, to say, when did Taylor Farm Kennel start? It, I bought my first dog in 2005 and I was a professional trainer for, for years before I would ever admit that I was a professional. I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like I was worthy to use that term. I had 15 dogs at the house, but I wasn't a pro trainer, if you ask me. Um, so best, best, best answer I can tell you that is I bought Allie in 2005 and I have been obsessed with the concept with the with the process ever since gotcha so going on almost uh 20 years then yes sir i'm time definitely flies so you know talking talking about your first dog alley and and you know your we'll call it career training if you wouldn't consider yourself a professional at the time you but you know, you still had some dogs under your care. When did you get into to HRC? Was that right there with Allie or were you one of those guys that were just hunting and you kind of stumbled it, on it? It was, <clears throat> it was definitely right. <laughs> Excuse me. With Allie. Um, I was, I loved hunting. That was my passion. Um, the first when when I was looking at buying my first dog, I bought him from a guy named Glenn Connie and Glenn said, you know, you need to decide what you want to do now. And I said, what, what do you mean? She's like, do you want to do field trials? Do you want to hunt? Do you want to do hunt tests? Or we talked about the different, the different disciplines, the different experiences, and he explained the different things. And, and I said, to me, it sounds like that field trials are a whole lot like horse racing. He said, that would not be a, a far gone conclusion. Um, and, you know, essentially the roots of what field trials are and, and, and where they are now are, you know, not even in the same zip code. So my initial love was for hunting and for hunting dogs, which led me straight to HRC, which is definitely my heart. You know, still it's, it's the most realistic hunting game. It, it, it tries to replicate all the facets of hunting. So I always love the thought of competing because I was a, I was a, an athlete my whole life. Um, so that, that, that was intriguing in and of itself. But HRC was my original goal. It was what I started in and, and where I'm, I'm most deeply rooted still. Sure. 
And, you know, for, for people who are familiar with HRC, they know it's a tiered system. So I'm assuming with your first dog, did you work your way through it or did you just kind of skip, uh, skip started or what did you do in HRC when you first, there's, first there's nothing in this world that scares me more than running started. It's probably because I failed. If I didn't fail three, I failed four started tests with my very first dog. Um, I had her, you know, through all her basics. I had her through force fetch and I had not done it with a real duck. I thought that if I could get her to pick a hammer up off the ground, then a real duck should be easy. And she was really tender mouth. So she wouldn't, she would not pick up a duck the first time she saw it, which was at a test, which was a terrible thing. Um, I will never forget one of the judges there the first time that I ran when she went out and didn't pick up her first bird. I learned a valuable lesson about HRC and about judges at that time because the judge saw that I had put my work in. She saw the dog was, was prepared and had missed a step. And she literally turned around and grabbed a bird off the rack. And she said, take this and go practice because you're almost there. I thought that was a, a huge step towards pushing you know, a, a first-time handler in the right direction. Um, some people would have taken that different ways. You know, failure, some people will run from failure. Some people will run right at it. Um, I'm usually the latter of the two. Um, but, I mean, I, I bombed terribly and did it again the next day. And I did it again at another test after that. The first, the first pass that Allie ever got was actually an upland because – I had gone back, I had finished filling in the holes in my in my basics, and I drove all the way across the state to go run Old South's hunt test. This was when it was in Columbus or just south of Columbus, Georgia, which couldn't be farther from my house as far as east to west on the state. And I got there and started was full. Season was full and finished at openings. I knew I wasn't ready for that. And they had up... Uh, they had openings in Upland, and I had been working at a local quail preserve, so I knew that she understood how to deal with that. So my first pass in HRC with, with Allie was Upland, <laughs> and that was a not the way that you're supposed to start your career, especially for a for a, a upcoming pro to go bomb and started three or four times in a row. Um, you Usually, and, and there's no such thing as never, but if you ever see me, if I'm at started, I'm usually lost. I get anxiety about dealing with those young dogs that once you say their name and let go of them, there's nothing else you can do. Yeah. So I would rather train more and test later than, than rush to a started test any day. Oh, I feel that. And that's that's pretty interesting. And and you're right, you know, started is I don't know why why, but I feel kind of the same way with started. It's there's no control. It's, you know, it's all on the dog. But, but I'm, I learned that very first day, you know, when people ask me about started and, and especially when it comes to judging started, I am not a started judge, but I, I, I can speak from experience that a started judge is no different than a drug dealer. Their job is to get you hooked. And <laughs> that day, that day, that very first day, that judge did it for me. She did it the right way. It was a great experience, even though I, I got to fail. Oh, I hated that. But that was a, that was a great experience. Um, and that's what started should should be about is getting people in, involved. 
um, excited about the sport and ready to do something else. And that was definitely my experience. Yeah. I, as far as started judges go, I had a similar experience with my first weekend in HRC too. I filled the first day and um, judge kind of looked at me and said, you're coming back tomorrow, right? And, you know, if he hadn't asked that question in kind of a loaded way, I might have might have thought about it on the two-hour drive back home. But, um, you know, showed up the next day, and I've always had someone in the gallery record my run. That way I know what mistakes I make, what the dog does, because everything gets lost in the moment. And I like to review film. And I didn't realize it, but when Taylor picked up her first started pass, I heard the gallery start clapping. Well. I figured it was a poodle thing or maybe it's just a started thing or or what have you. But I noticed in the video, I zoomed in and that judge, when she picked up that second bird, turned around to everybody and kind of motioned for him to clap like a, you know, a little word of encouragement. And, you know, that, that's, that, that is like what you said, it is a drug. Knowing that there's people that have your well, back and, and, and people in the sport that support you being there. It's one of the things that endears hunt tests to people because it has a tendency to bring out the better part of human nature rather than the competitive. Sometimes in, sometimes in the competitive aspect of things, people can show their ugly side. And it's, it's, it's understandable. It's part of competition sports. But that's one of the fun things about hunt tests is your dog doing good or bad has no bearing on anybody else. So there's no reason for them to not cheer for you. It's, a, it's an uplifting experience, in my, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, we go from from your first started test. What about your first grand? How long how long after did you run from your first started test to your first grand? Um, my first grand was in the spring of two thousand and eight, and that was because it was in Madison, Georgia, which was two hours from the house, and we had a little informal training group. You know, it was. There were there were other people that came and went, but it was essentially me, and it was it was Dude's owner Mark Massey, and he brought Dude and Dan Reel, who had St. Thomas Chief, who was a Grand Hunt Retriever Champion Boykin, uh, it w- would eventually become a Grand Hunting Retriever Champion, and also the very first Boykin to ever pass the Master National. Um, mm-hmm. so that was our little training group that would would occur on the weekends. Um. Like I said, there were others um, there, and we decided we were going to do it, and we were the definition of broke. I mean, essentially, I was going to go and run Alley no matter what, and I told Mark, I said, I'm, I, if you want me to run Dude, I'll be glad to run Dude. I'm going either way, um, and running twos, you know, outside of an entry fee, there's not, there's not going to cost us any more to run two dogs than it is to run one. And we actually had to take up a collection in the training group for <laughs> to, to pay for the dog to get in to run. I mean, it was money was tight. We slept in a tent at the state park to uh, to run the event, but it was it was part of the process, part of the journey. And and, and that was it. It's humble beginnings make you not forget where you came from. Yeah. So my very first grand was in '08. That was with Dude as well. Um, I, I I lost Allie in the third series, and Dude passed, and that was the beginning of a of the journey. The only the only grand I have missed since then was 
the St. Louis Grand two years ago. This time, two years ago, fall two years ago, because I was in the hospital with COVID, and I was plotting and planning how, when I got out, how I was going to be able to get to St. Louis. But cooler heads prevailed, and they wouldn't let me go. But I didn't make it to the Master National after that. <laughs> well, I mean, you so you've seen the grain for what the better part of fifteen years now. Um, how has that changed for you? Like, what, have you seen any progression or evolution in the grand itself, um, or even in the oh. the dogs that are are successful at the grand over that time? There's been there's been a lot of changes, um, mostly for the good. Um, and as, as any organization is going to have, you're going to have your your ups and downs. You're going to have your struggles and your tribulations. Uh, when I started running the grand, the max that you could run was eight. That was the limit. So limits wise, we've gone from being able to run eight to to then 12 and to now unlimited, which the grand kind of has its own way of limiting. You know, it's a, it's a self-limiting aspect in and of itself. So the, the standards of how much you could run have changed. When I started, everybody Everybody was complaining that it was an obedience competition, that if your dog beat you to the line or had style, that you were going to get marked down. Some of that, I think I got in kind of on the tail end of that. Most, I, I didn't have that experience for the most part. Um, I think that most of the people, and, and same thing true, is true today, most of the people who are complaining about the standard of the grand don't have many green ribbons to show. Um, you know, that, that, that big, to me, the most beautiful ribbon in HRC is the black and white ribbon that they give you after the second, which, and they give you a streamer to go with it for every series that you pass. If you, if you didn't get the big green ribbon at the end, if it was just filling out that black and white ribbon, that would be enough for me. But like I said, most of the people that are doing that kind of complaining don't have the success to, to, to speak from. So I feel like most of the standards that have changed, I think the grand is, is a is probably a little bit easier today than it was when I started, but for the right reasons. They they let dogs have a chance to hunt when they're near a bird. They understand that dogs are not machines and that, you know, perfection is a relative thing. So I mean, there was times when I first started running and part of it was part of it was the difficulty and part of it was the simple fact of the perception of things, but you felt like if you blew more than two or three whistles on a blind, you could be, you could be in judgment of, or in danger of, of getting marked down, you know, scared to death, especially, especially with dude. I realized with him that I usually didn't really see the real dude till like series three, series four. And it was because I was being so hard on him going up to the competition. Cause he was such a big dog. If he took one step under the gun barrel, he was flirting with being outside the range of what could have been considered excessive. And I sure didn't want to lose my, my one markdown that I get for the whole competition because the dog took a half a step and got out from under the gun barrel. So it took him a couple series just to kind of loosen up a lot of times um, going into the grand. If I had, if I had to do it differently with him now, I would probably be a lot more easy on him just around the line than I had to, back then one because 
I can recognize that he was a better dog when I let go of him and two because I don't have to worry as much that they, they, they do a lot better job evaluating the dog's style character and work now rather than just having a, a black and white template that says you either had two refusals therefore you're at at a pair of ones or you know whatever the checklist was once upon a time mm-hmm that's interesting. And, and and you talk about a dude. Dude uh, ended up finding quite a bit of success at, at the Grand. How many, yeah, how many um, passes did he have? Overall, I think he was 15 for 17 was was our record, our 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 um stat line, so to speak. He he failed in in Madison, Georgia <laughs> when it should have been his 15th pass. He failed because I was too loose on him, because I had been too easy on him in training. That one was kind of on me. Um, he got he got pencil whipped pretty hard, in my opinion, in, I think it was in 10, 2010 maybe. And it was in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, that he did not pass one. So I felt like one of them was on me. One of them was, was a borderline that didn't go our way, which is, again, part of the grand. That's going to be what it is. Um, but he was as consistent as they come and just to be, you know, to be the first, my first one to be my first grand dog. It was, it was not fair in the sense that I got blessed with an animal that I didn't deserve. He was, he was a much better, much better dog than I was a trainer or handler. And he helped me learn a lot about what you can't expect from a dog. Sure. And then you know, kind of following in, in dude's reputation at Grands, you've got Mason now, huh? Yep. Um, <clears throat> Mason Mason's in his twilight years as well. He just turned 11 in January. Um, another dog that I got because of dude that I had simultaneously with dude, he came just to uh, uh, maybe two or three grands after I started running was Bobo. Bobo ended up with 10 grand passes. He was my first Super Retriever Series winner. He was a nice, really, really amazing animal in and of itself. But Bobo is Mason's father. So um, Mason came out of this really, really... I had a, a breeder who I've trained for, for forever. David Oglesby and David had these two females. This was during the summer that uh that EIC came out from the University of Minnesota. They were, you know, the actual published results were coming out. And, you know, Lean Mac was a carrier and his son, five star general Patton, turned out to be a carrier. Long story short, five, they they bred five star general Patton to a, a dog named Harley, who was a Blackwater Rudy female. David owned her and just had a a really neat um, blend come out. And he brought me those two females. Um, and he said, you know, he, he loved one. I love the other one. And uh, I said, you know, I said, I'll tell you what, David. I said, I really like this dog that you don't like. I said, why don't we make a deal? I would like to have this dog. I said, let's train both of them, and I'll charge you nothing and give you one, and I'll keep the other one. He said, there's this new test coming out, and if all that checks out, that's a great idea. That's a great deal. Well, 
of course, the dog that, that I liked was clear and the dog that he liked was a carrier. So he wanted to keep the clear dog, you know, not knowing about all the ramifications of EIC and how it's just something that you breed around. It's not something that you just eliminate. Um, long story short, he chose to keep Georgia, the one that I wanted, the one that he didn't like. And when I got her, she was an obedience training force fetch. That was it. And she made a hunting retriever champion in less than six six months of training. She went from a dog that was just had never didn't know handling all the way to HRCH in six months. Um, so I always picked on about that was the dog that was broken that he didn't like. That was Mason's mom. And mm. so when we were when when Bobo came on board. And he was running really good. And I was begging David. I said, David, I really think you should breed Georgia to Bobo. And he was, well, he's on, you know, he doesn't have anything but an HRCH and a master hunter, you know. And I was working on that. I said, I promise you, this will be a good breeding. You really need to do it. And I finally twisted his arm into doing it. He bred to a hunt retriever champion, master hunter. And when the puppies hit the ground, the the pedigree then said that he was a grand hunt retriever champion um with an SRS classic win so he had already he he got his grand title and he won an SRS before the puppies were born um and we repeated that breeding several several times mason was not the first cross he was second or third time that we redid it but um Loved that cross. Love, love, love breeding Bobo to that five-star general patent female. Um, it just brought out the best qualities. So I love training dogs that I trained their the their predecessors, and that's been a really cool thing. Mason's Mason tied dude this year. So they're both tied at 15 grand passes. Whether we make 16, I don't know. I just got him back. A week ago today so mason's been back for a week he had a couple of things he's 11 years old i'm not teaching him anything all i'm doing is getting him in shape um but you know he he and dude both were, were blessed they both won the crown the srs crown championship um dude did it twice mason won it last year i don't know if we'll run the crown this year because like i said we're getting on up there in age and i want to do right by him but uh He's been a really, really cool animal. And uh, I remember sitting down with Miss Elaine under the carport when he was four or five months old, you know, and we set out a game plan of what we wanted to do, the journey that we wanted to to travel, and, you know, the check marks that we wanted to have. And she never once said anything about breaking the record for the Grand. She wanted a Grand Champion, which is, that was definitely one of the goals from the start. but she just let us kind of do our thing and we kept doing it and and didn't make any waves and just kept working and so mason's mason's 15 he's 15 for 15 with me but he's miss elaine ran, ran him one time and and they didn't pass that was very very early in his career he missed one because of we didn't have one because of covid and then together he and i were not together um, for the the Grand in St. Louis, so he he has technically failed too, um, as well. But he and I together have are fifteen for fifteen, and technically, 
I mean, technically we, we, we had three shots that we didn't have a chance at. So whether we make it or not, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't take away from what he's done. It's been a, it's been a really cool ride and he's been a really cool dog and he's given me a hundred percent every day. Awesome. Yeah. And, and you as a handler too, was it the last grand? I heard, uh, heard some rumors that, that you set a record as a handler. Did you not? Don't, no, well, you the one that told me I did. <laughs> well, I heard, I, 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 don't I, I was breeding rumors a little bit. So Dominic was actually, uh, I don't remember if you said it to me there or if you, we were talking afterwards, but, um, evidently 14, the last grand I passed 14 dogs and that was, that was the new most at, at one event, which I thought was higher. I mean, I'm not going to lie. And I think I had 14 go to the last, the, the, the grand before that I had 14 go to the last series and I lost one in the upland. So I don't know if it was that, that made me think that there were more, I don't, I don't know. Records are made to be broken and I don't see that one. I don't see that one standing too long, not with how many dogs some people are running. You know, there are, there are people that run a lot of dogs and then there are people that pass a lot of dogs and, and, you know, there, there are some guys that are running more than 14 dogs at, a, at an event that very well, very easily could pass more than that. So that's part of the fun is, is we're all just trying to push that, push that uh, step a little higher. Alan, we both had Daltra Pathfinder 2s now for a little while. What do you think about yours? I'm liking mine. One of the things I had the opportunity to now download a map of an area where I did not have service, and I've used it there, and it has worked flawlessly. I love it. Yeah, I love the crystal clear maps. I love that I never lose reception on my dog's collars anymore. Highly recommended by me as well. Dogtra Pathfinder 2, the official GPS collar of UKC. Now, out of curiosity, you know, you might have to dig back thinking about your first grand or, or even just the last grand. You have, have some veteran dogs that have seen, I won't say they've seen everything, but they've seen close to it. What, are you ever walking to the line with a dog and first series you're like, okay, I know this dog's going to be in the fifth. I know I'm only picking up a green ribbon with this dog. Or do you still have a little bit of, um, realism that anything can happen or what, what's your confidence level with, with some of these veteran dogs that you run and versus, you know, first year dogs? Well, I mean, you could, you could look at that two different ways. I mean, you could look at it as a, I know I'm going to go to the fifth with this dog. So therefore I'm relaxed or actually it can actually go the other way around. You say, I know that I should be in the fifth with this dog. And if he doesn't make it, it is highly likely that it's something that I did wrong as a handler. So it, it's, it's one of those things that, and especially as, as, I, as I get a little bit older, I have to continually remind myself the focus should never go past the dog that's at your side. And it's uh, if you if you don't focus 
every little minute detail on the dog that's standing by your side from the time it gets out of the truck, you go to the line, you run, and then you come back. Your whole focus should be on that dog because it's you're an eyelash away from going home at any time. I actually had a client we were talking last Friday, and it was going to be her first national event. And I said, one thing you have to learn about running national events is that you got to go ready to go home. You got to understand that things happen in the first series to good dogs and they go home. And especially when you're talking about the grand where the grand's kind of like the college class that you go into. And the professor tells you that everybody in the class has a 100 average and that from there on, you're only going to pick up demerit points. You don't have the chance to bring yourself back up. You're only going to lose points from there. Um, that's a lot like what the grand is, except you get one dem- you get one demerit, and with outside of the, there is a, a, a possibility of a a possible second that that mathematically works out. But just as a general rule of thought, you get one bobble in the grand, and that's it. Second bobble means you're going home. Um, so when you're when the standard is that high, when the when the expectation is that high, you can't afford to bobble on something that could take away from your ability to use that later. You know, I want to go into the last series clean with perfect scores because that way if a dog gets out of shape on a mark, I know I have a little bit of leeway to give. I can I can help that dog. Now, I have lost dogs in that exact same scenario. I got a handle to give, so I'm going to use this whistle on this last mark, and then the dog blows me off, and 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 I'm out anyway. But it's, I don't, I guess to answer your question, I don't ever take it for granted because it's it's not it's not something that you can afford to take for granted. The moment that you get lackluster in your performance or your expectation is the moment that you're going home, not just with that dog, it could be your whole truck, you know, because that 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 ball starts rolling the wrong direction. You know, you, you, you don't put up what happened with, with the dog that you lost or the dog that you got marked down. You put it back in the truck and you're dwelling on that. You get the next dog out and you forget to, to put all that baggage up with the previous dog. And then you get the same thing happens on the next dog. And all of a sudden your entire truck's headed in the wrong direction because you couldn't, you couldn't put down the goof that you made that you never should have made because you weren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. So there's no. a, there's a definite, that that is a huge responsibility to bear that I don't think folks understand when it comes to running multiple dogs, how hard it is to, to stay focused on that dog and not let the good or the bad of what happened with the previous dog affect the next one. Yeah, just taking everything one bird at a time, as they say, right? Well, I mean, I've lost, I've lost clients because I refuse to sit there and cry in Cheerios over the dogs. You know, had a, it bobbled, it went out, whatever happened. And I'm the same way, really, when it comes to how good they did. You know, while we walk back to the truck, we can talk about it and say, man, I hate that, or this was great. But when that door sl- slams shut on that truck, I'm done talking about that dog and you know especially if it's something that that was negative because can't afford the next dog doesn't deserve me having negative thoughts 
And I'm just, I'm done with it at that point. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I won't think about it later. I just can't afford to think about it right then because the way the grand usually shapes up, you know, especially now since we've expanded and have smaller flights, I mean, you walk to the truck, you get a dog, you go through the holding blinds, you run your dog, you bring it back. You might sit down for five minutes, maybe, or you might be grabbing another dog and going straight back to the line. So it's just a, especially the later in the event it gets, the the more rapid paced the, the event gets for multi-dog handlers. Yeah, it, I, I couldn't, couldn't imagine at that level the the mental fortitude to be able to truly check the baggage with this dog or or the praise with this dog that second pick up the next dog and we're on a completely clean slate i feel like i would still be thinking about well i know they didn't mark that that one perfectly so i wonder if i had just well, a little bit to give them a better picture like i i feel like i i would even struggle with with checking that baggage, everything would be in the back of my head, but I'm also a clinical overthinker. Well, I, that one of the jokes that I make, you know, I have a pretty, pretty large amateur training group that pre-grand trains with me and they'll be, they'll be moaning and groaning about something, you know, and the joke that I make is it, it is a joke, but it's not, is that you care too much. I said, you know, the same amount of people care how, the care when you get done and you did great the same amount of people care that you did good as if you did bad you're not changing the court of course of fate we're not curing cancer here and then i'll say you know i am the only person here whose livelihood depends on whether or not these dogs do well and that's just me giving a reality check to the to the um owners who are also handling is that this is a game it's supposed to be fun and if you if you carry that baggage if you worry too much if you care so much that your dog's going to do well the dogs sense that and they don't sense it in a proper manner they they see it as a as a um as a sign of weakness and dogs are genetically programmed to challenge authority so you going up there and hoping and dreaming and you're handshaking because you're nervous does nothing but damage your chances of of, of doing well so one of the things, especially the folks that do my ladies handler seminar will tell you is that I preach that nervousness is a wasted emotion. It does nothing but hurt your, your chances of success when it comes to dogs. Now I could apply to start it all the way up to, to grand, but what advice do you give to, to no new doubt. or even experiences, experienced handlers to check that nervousness? You got any tips? I've heard people say everything from, you know, chew gum to, you know, sit down every chance you get, like just random stuff. Everyone's got their own little uh, home remedy for curing nerves. Do you have any, um, any little tricks or anything you've ever heard that, that make any sense to you? I mean, again, you know, the, the, a lot of times with me, the truth's hidden in a joke and, and seriously, I mean, understanding how small, the dog doing well is in the course of fate and truly understanding, you know, this is your dog and you love your dog and everybody's got the greatest dog in the world, but it's, it's your dog and nobody else cares and just go enjoy it and just sit that other stuff down and decide to be a better handler 
because you're checking a weakness. It's it's you just have to step back and pretend like it ain't your dog. You know, this is somebody else's dog. I'm just running it, and I'm hope I'm gonna do good for both of them. But I'm gonna be a good handler for this dog's sake. Don't get hung up in the emotion of it. Um, I had a I had a coach in high school who was very prevalent in Korea and Vietnam. His name we called him Colonel Moore, and I remember one day we were talking about having a nervous stomach for running track. He said, I can tell you what will fix a nervous stomach, war. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the point that he was making is, you know, this stuff's nothing when you compare it to life or death. And that's kind of the the way that I encourage my people to look at this. This is a dog playing a game. You're not going to get executed if your dog doesn't do it well. But you can choose to be a better handler by by eliminating weakness and the best way to do that is to, to try to check your nerves now i'm not ever going to say my hand doesn't shake when i put it down over a dog but it's not because i am a lot of people are addicted to that emotion and they don't even realize it they that they want that feeling but they also want to be successful and if i got to choose between the emotion of success or the emotion of i'm not sure if this dog's going to do it and it's so exciting I'm going to choose success. I'm going to choose the 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 journey of of achieving success over the emotion of the dog, watching the dog actually do the, the task. Sure. Now that makes good sense about people getting they're not addicted to that. It they're addicted to the adrenaline they feel of the uncertainty of the situation and let that kind of run them a little bit, but uh yeah, what do you, what do you say thing about adrenaline? Well, I think going back to what you said, I think the, the point to make there is that one thing that helps you control that is knowing that you did your homework, knowing that you checked the boxes, knowing that when you ask this dog to do this, this is not something that they have never seen or are unprepared for. I get much, much more concerned if I'm walking into a scenario that the dog has not been prepared for than knowing you know i i know that just because i've done the work doesn't mean the dog's going to translate that at that point in time but i know that we have prepared appropriately for the task at hand that was one of the things that that drove me so much in the early part of my career was the the absolute hatred of failure and the uncertain in the simultaneous uncertainty of am i doing what it takes to be to be successful at this chosen task. Am I doing, am I doing the work that's going to take to pass the grand? Am, am I preparing appropriately? And that was one of those things that nobody was guiding me. I was through trial and error, you know, just doing everything I could to keep my head above the water many times, but I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the preparation aspect of it. That was, that was part of what drove me. Sure. And, and kind of talking about preparation, I know, the the biggest thing in dog training is you train the dog in front of you, right? That that one specific dog gets what it needs out of each setup, out of each bird. How how do you go about that that short time training? Like you're talking about Mason's coming back to you and and the grand's right around the corner versus, you know, maybe a first time, we'll call him a rookie grand dog that's going to their first grand this season. Uh what does those just couple of weeks look like before the grand 
for for those two dogs? Do they look vastly different, or are they seeing more or less the same thing, or or what what's that? Yeah, I, w- I would say that they're that they're seeing very similar setups, but that doesn't mean that you can't get a vast difference in what you're addressing in the setup. You know, if I have a dog that's struggling on memory birds, they may see more memory birds than singles. Or if I have a dog who needs more control and handling, they may have a more a more consistent um, application of pressure. I don't mean just collar pressure or physical pressure, just I am doing more handling type concepts inside that setup to get what I need out of every dog. So, you know, like for Mason, to give you an idea how his day is different, um, he he runs to the kennel in the morning. There's nothing that he enjoys more than running with a buggy. And he hates to, for the buggy to get ahead of him. So I might not press that butt, that pedal as far to the floor as I used to, but I keep him at a good pace, you know, just just conditioning. And he may not see every setup um, if it's going to be something, if it's too hot or if, you know, if it's too taxing right then. But for him, it's about conditioning. Whereas with other dogs, you know, I have another dog on my truck that's, he's a very experienced dog, but he's not a very experienced HRC dog. So we swing with the gun a lot with him working on that small aspect of communication. Um, so every dog's got a different hand, which is in part why I love the Edge RT that Dogtron makes so much because it is such a diverse tool. You know, the RT in the Edge stands for retriever training, and it's got that low, medium, high on every setting concept. So instead of having the 0 to 127, you know, uh, digital display, this has just got the rotating dial. You got eight eight primary levels and three sub-levels on every on every level. Um, so for each dog, you know, some dogs, some dogs need more pressure more consistently, you know, Mason, I don't even know if I've used the collar yet in the week that he's been back. If it was, it was just a small nick where some of my younger crew that got a lot more piss and vinegar in them, you know, they're, the dial's at a different number and it's at a different duration for them. Um, it's just, Again, we're making that collar pressure match. All, all the collar really does for a retriever is extend your realm of influence. And it's, the, it's essentially, you know, in, in seminars I teach that it's, the, it's, it's just, it's the same thing as if a teenager knew that you could see them and get them anywhere, anytime, anyplace. <laughs> to a dog, that's what, a, that's what an appropriate collar response is, is that, this collar's on me, and it doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking. He can get me. It with you know, it's an invisible hand, but it can it can get me. And it's not it's not something that just that you use when a dog does something wrong. It's also to help them make the correct decision with more impulse. So it's a uh, dogs are makes a great product. Uh, they're they're tough. They're reliable. They're durable, and they're dynamic. Um, so I, I love, they make a lot of different other products, but Edge RT is, is, is what I use almost exclusively because of that broad range that, that it offers at the, that, at a fingertips touch. I don't have to do a lot of 
turning dials or looking down. I know where I'm at based off the clicks of the, of the dial. Um, it's just, it's, it's a great product to go along. Um, it, you can't, you can't talk about true retriever training and true application of those, you know, over the weeks of pr- preparation for a big event without including that concept of electric pressure when necessary. Um, but going back to your statement, your, to your question, those last couple of weeks, you know, one of the running jokes that we always have when we get to that week before, you know, I leave and go and train somewhere else before I run the Grand. And, the, and I always remind my folks that are there, if you didn't bring it with you, if it didn't get off that truck, you're not going to have it now. So don't try to, don't try to create something now. All we're doing is trying to polish what's there. You know, we're, we're trying to establish confidence, style, and, and structure all in, in the same setting. So the enjoyable part about running a lot of dogs at, at, at the Grand is trying to take all those dogs with all those different personalities different skill levels and talent levels and get them to all be the best they can be for that week. And you're, you're doing it, you know, it's just like peaking athletes. It takes different, it takes different steps or applications that you're trying to do within, within standard setups. But every year I feel like it's a little different. You know, we're doing this a little different. We're, we're tweaking here. We're trying to get better. You know, it's just, Every year, something's a little something changes, and mm-hmm. most times it's for the good. And if it's not, then we're then we're getting rid of that change. <laughs> sure, yeah, you know, talking about the edge, I've used the edge before. I like the edge. I hunt quite a bit, and uh, so I'm I'm a pretty big fan, and personally use the uh, 1900 series just because I like that smaller transmitter because it clips right on my waders and it's not pulling them down half the time. And I don't have too big an issue with losing them. I won't say I've never lost one, but uh, I have had a buddy lost his edge because it worked its way out of a pocket, that that big old transmitter. But, you know, it's it's a fantastic. Well, it might have worked its way out of a pocket, but one thing that they don't that they don't really push that actually I can vouch for is the edge transmitter floats really um i had it i had it slip out of my waders in belly button deep water and just kerplunk i was like oh my i'm not gonna bend over in that and sure enough it it floated right back up so i don't know if they meant for that to happen and i don't know if how long it'll it'll float but it it certainly (laughs) did for me in mississippi (laughs) um that's interesting i really like the 1900 s black edition that they've got mm-hmm. out now um it's got the it's got a different color um light on the receiver it's the blue light for on mm-hmm. and red for off i like the fact that that receiver has the the button integrated that you can physically turn it on and off and I, they've got a, a a better strap on that on that black edition so I, i'm pretty familiar with that unit as well um don't ask me about anything else because that just like you said, it's good for hunting. Um, I really like the receivers in an abundance of different ways, but that's a that's a pretty cool unit as well. Yeah, that's what I've got. And I mean, <laughs> whether we're talking about dogs or talking about collars, I tend to be a fan of all things that are jet black. <laughs> so you know that that 
nice black collar that it comes so, with and the all black transmit like it's I, I like that aspect of it too but yeah that's yeah that's like what I said I, that was I um mr pete sent me sent me uh that 1900s uh a year or two ago the the black edition and i was like you know they're just essentially putting a tiara on it and calling it a queen, you know, but I didn't, I didn't really think there'd be that much difference, but I was really impressed with, with the, the upgrades they had done on that. It was, like I said, the, I like the, the light is a lot easier to tell on and off. And it's a, uh, I like the strap better. It was all the way around. It was a, it was a clear upgrade of, of the version. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the little blue blinking light too myself. Uh, now, you know, maybe shifting perspective a little bit from just focusing at Grand and, and Tess in general, but what's what's your favorite stage of retriever training? Is it is it those finished dogs or is it, you know, the seasoned dogs? Do you enjoy doing swim by and making making everything click and, and tying loose ends together? Like what is your favorite part of retriever training? What do you think it would be? You've known me enough to know. I mean, it just just guess. What do you think I would like? I feel like you you would en- you enjoy swim by quite a bit, just blinds in general. There's nothing I enjoy more than playing with puppies. <laughs> I mean, from baby steps, putting foundation in, obedience, force fetch, collar condition, T work. Swim by transition into bird boy blinds, man. I love, love bringing puppies through that because you see such a high learning curve. You see, you see so much happen so fast. Um, I enjoy putting that that foundation in them because I know I'm going to be able to fall back on that foundation for the rest of their lives. You know, we know what the Bible says about. A house built on a poor foundation, and that's I've taken that all the way back. When when I ran my first Super Retriever series, I said, "Man, this is awesome!" You know, how do I better prepare? Not the dogs I have now, but but the dogs that I will have. How do I set them up for success in the future? Um, that's been I've enjoyed building dogs like that ever since. You know, when when Dude was still in his prime. And folks would want to get start talking about him, and I would point out that don't judge my program by dude because I didn't do his basics. Judge my program, and I would turn around and the young tr- the young dog coming off my truck were dogs like Mason. I'm like, look at Mason. He's he is a product of from start to finish the way that we that we are doing things and the way that we are bringing dogs up. Um, so it's not uncommon you know the month of october is going to be nuts um you know we've got three national events in one month and normally when i have that kind of workload or i get done with the fall of campaigning dogs it is not unusual for me to to take all my big dogs give them to my other guys and and let me have a group of puppies and you know as, as a matter of fact um I think we have 39, 39 dogs signed up for the Master National at the end of October. Um, and roughly half of those 
were two or were, were just just getting done or, or finishing up force fetch when I came home from when I missed the grand because of COVID and then I ran the Master National and I ran the Super Retriever Series Crown Championship and I got home and it was like the fifth of November and I said, guys, y'all take all these dogs. I don't want to see them. And I grabbed all those puppies and I went to work. And, you know, I mean, they were literally on the force fetch table, forced to pile right in that area. And I went to work on that group and messed with them, you know, pretty much till February or even a little bit later. Um, they were they were my my winter project and my therapy all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, talking about that learning curve, you definitely start to see a lot of light bulbs click in, in such a short period of time. It's definitely rewarding. But it, you know, I'm I'm sure. Well, I always one of, one of the points that I always make to my guys coming up is that you cannot be a great big dog trainer. You don't have to love young dog work. I'm not saying that, but you can't be a great big dog trainer without being a good young dog trainer at some point in your career. Because if you don't, you under, you don't understand how the building blocks fit together you don't understand how that foundation clicks in that dog's mind at that integral time and why it should make the decision that you want it to make based off the foundation work that you did in in basics so it's if you don't have that true understanding not just to be able to do it but to be able to do it over and over and over again replicate it teach other people why why this should be the way it is until you have that kind of level of understanding about young dog stuff you'll never really be great at big dog stuff you'll always have that lack of or disconnect between the basics and the finished product uh you know one of my my training mentors kind of put it to me it, it was on the same topic you're talking about now he said there's a difference between the science of dog training and the art of dog training. You need both of them to, to be successful and find success with dogs. But science is just knowing what should be done. Art is knowing truly how to do it and with each dog, when to do it, what to do in certain and and all the the things that you can't just read in a book or you can't just watch a YouTube video on. And I think that kind of connects with what you're saying. Understanding that foundation and all that young dog stuff is kind of the art of it. The science that like you can, you know how to stand next to a dog and call their name and, and you know, the mechanics of running a blind, but do you understand why this dog is going to do everything you ask it to do when you go to that setup? Well, I think, the greatest title of, of any retrieving material that w that's out there is Roram's The Art and Science of, I think it's Handling a Retriever, but it's, it's in that exact same vein. The other point that I make to folks is that they don't understand or they have never thought about the fact that lawyers practice law and doctors practice medicine. So you should be practicing training dogs, the application of dog training. It, it is a practice that you are, if you're not practicing it, you're not getting better at it. You're not learning more about it. And that's exactly what dog training is. That's why you see, especially folks that get in, that get 
addicted to field trials now. They're they're in, they're in love with the process. They're in love with the application and the replication over and over again. They're not in love with the dog. They're in love with the process of going through the steps. So, and that's kind of what it takes to be successful, especially at that game. So, it's some people call it the process. My point is that you you should be practicing the art of dog training and the science of dog training every time that you work with animals. No, that's definitely good. Uh, good insight on it. Now, with the grand right around the corner impart any wisdom to people listening that might be on their way out to the grand or you know bouncing back and forth between whatever piecemeal training grounds they got together for the grand um what what words of of wisdom do you have for for those guys easiest thing in the world i can tell you how to pass a grand don't give them anything to judge it's (laughs) it is that simple in the sense that you do not have to go out there and step on all the marks and line all the blinds. Don't try to do that. You want to be utterly forgettable. You want to go up there, do your work, and be gone, and the judge flip his page and say, what just happened? You know, it's, it's, it is that easy in this aspect of you don't have to be memorable. You just have to go out there and do your work, get in and get out, and be gone. And don't give them no bubbles. You know, if they if they're not thinking, if they're if you get done running and your dog, four hundred and eighty two that they've looked at, and they literally get done with the run, and then they say, "What just happened?" That means you just got a perfect score, and you're going to the next series. Don't give them anything to judge. Now, of course, we all know that's not that simple, but if you if you can follow that, you will pass the grand. How about that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, don't give them anything to judge is good for, you know, even started. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I remember once I was talking, I think it was my, one of my first season tests and, you know, you read the rule book cover to cover and you know, it says there's a handle to the fall and a handle in the fall are two completely different things. And being the, the overthinker I tend to be, I asked one of my good buddies, I said, now, if if in the situation that I need to handle and it's close to the bird, do I walk off the line and go, do you guys have that down as two or or in? And they said, absolutely not. You walk away from that thinking you acting like you passed. Head up and you just go. Don't don't make them even think you questioned where that bird was. You you walk away knowing that uh, if you handled on that, that was that was in the area of the fall. So it's kind of the same thing of, you don't you don't want to make them question even in the back of their mind that it wasn't in. Just let it be. I have um, the rule book says that the receiver, the retriever, should proceed directly to the area of the fall and establish a hunt. And there are many dogs with a gr in front of their name that had I not utilized. That concept, the dog proceeded directly to the area of the fall, established a hunt near the bird or close to the bird and just wasn't coming up with it. And rather than letting the dog leave the area and then having to bring it back, I caught it while it was in the area, especially if I watched the other dogs run and knew that the judges were amenable to that. Um, I think back actually to Wisconsin. Um, I was watching 
uh, um, the the next series, I, I must have gotten done early because I, I went over and I was watching the test and the first bird out, it was pretty much directly down the left-hand shoreline and it you, your dog didn't have to get wet, but it landed behind a tree that had fallen down into the pond. The dog had to jump the, the tree trunk and, you know, you could hear, you could, you could hear the, the bird hit and it would either thump or it would splash or it would even, and this was the most horrifying one, it would splat. And that splat, you can only imagine after three or 400 times the bird hitting in that area, a splat could mean that bird might be visible if you know what you're looking for. It may not. It may be sitting level with the mud line. You know, it was just, it was one of those marks that you really wanted it to splash or you really wanted it to thump because that dog could go running down that shoreline, not be wet, jump that log and be over the bird and gone to no man's land in no time because it was a tight test. The memory bird in the middle wasn't very far offline. The dog could jump over that bird and be at the other fall or or hunting near that other fall three or four seconds, you know, and I watched the dog take off from the line. I couldn't actually see the dog hunting, but I heard it jump the log, and I mean in no time the handler blew the whistle, and I looked at the judges, and I looked, and I saw them both nod their heads that, that the dog was in the area. And so I learned right there, I was like, that is going to save me because I know that they understand how difficult that mark is, what they're expecting the dogs to do. And so all that dog has to do is identify that bird. Once it identifies that bird, I better not let him leave. I don't remember when Wisconsin was, 12. The first one might have been in 12. Yeah. I think the first one was in 12, which means Mason was a young buck. And I handled Mason on that mark in the area for the exact same thing because he got a splat. He went hauling behind over that log. And when I tell you he made a circle, I'm talking about you can't spin any faster. And he was ready to leave. And so as soon as he made that one with that one spin, I hit the whistle, toot, toot, toot. Brought him back with a bird, and he was in the area. I learned that watching the, the 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 flight ahead of me run. I mean, and that was again going back to being a savvy handler and understanding how to give the judges what they wanted. I, I figured out what they wanted there. I knew my dog, and that that mark was not his mark. He was going to blow over that thing if he had a chance, and we got through it. I mean, I can't remember. How many grams it was, Miss Elaine, I'm sure could tell you, but it was a it was a bunch. It was it might have been eight or ten grams that Mason and I ran together that he would give up his perfect score in the first or the second series, and we'd have to kind of let it all hang out <laughs> to the end. But he didn't pass. I want to say he did not pass a grand clean until like his eighth, somewhere between eight and ten grams. So he gave up his perfect score somewhere in there. And usually with him, it was at the beginning, not at the end. He just liked to play it. He liked to play it that way. Yeah. With um, 
It's a little bit off topic, but what do you think the prime for a dog is? Now, I'm not talking about the Masons of the world, but just in general, when do you think that dog hits its prime? And, you know, if you had to, to average it out. I would say that you really don't know what a dog is that are somewhere around four or five, you know, as far as what their mature mindset and, and, and strengths and weaknesses and, and, and skill set is going to be, you know, that's, it's so laughable to me. People get in such a rush to get a dog titled by a certain age. And, and I cannot tell you how many times I, I tell clients, I do not care what a dog is when they're two. I care what they are when they're four. I want to see, then be a total package and be the best they can be at four years old, not sit there and wish that or, 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 you know, pontificate about what they could have been, but if we'd only gone and done it right instead of rushed. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that they, they even know who they are really well until they're four or five years old. So usually somewhere five to eight, five to nine, somewhere like that. You know, especially when you start talking about Super Retriever Series, you usually don't see dogs start getting good till they're, you know, six or seven because they have to master so many different facets of of the game. Um, you know, Mr. Ron Anderson won last year, won the amateur crown with a three-year-old, and he'd tell you, I actually think he did in his interview, said that they were ahead of schedule. They weren't even supposed to be there yet. And you'll see young dogs get on that kind of roll, you know, when kind of like a, a a a baseball player when they start getting on a hot streak. That that ball doesn't look like it's the size of a baseball; it looks like the size of a of a softball or even bigger. You know, they just see it well, and they'll go through spurts like that. So, I would say, I would say a dog's prime, a normal animal, can't happen before they're four, because they don't even know who they are yet. And so sometime after that and before age gets them, if I, if I had the choice, I would kind of like to hit the pause button usually somewhere around, somewhere between eight and 10. That seems like when they are savvy enough to have seen it all and done it all and still have enough physical ability that you're not, you're not fighting with, with father time too much. You know, do they see as good? Do they hear as good? You know, how many, how many, creaks and aches do they have when they wake up in the morning i mean again every dog's different but probably somewhere for me i love i love an older dog when they can still do it and they got all that savvy mixed together it's a dangerous combination oh i'm glad hearing that because my oldest just turned four so i see a little bit of that when we go out and train that the gears turn I don't know. Everything seems to click. And it's also good to, to hear that too. And I've got a year and a half year old puppy, basically, that I'm like, will I ever get through this? Well, then the thing that, that I would encourage you with that puppy, you know, everybody wants to rush to the, to the fun stuff. And they forget that all that puppy stuff is the fun stuff. And, you know, you got you want to look at, at at your year and a half old and say, I want it to be where my four-year-old is. Well, in reality, it's the journey of the, the whole process, you know, and all those things that, that people have a tendency to cheer for 
and and get all excited about with that first dog. They're just trying to get those things out of the way so they can get to advanced concepts. And that's the biggest mistake you make. You know, you want to, every one of those dogs deserves to be cheered for just like your first one was. And, you know, I think that a really good young dog trainer is just like a kindergarten teacher. You know, they, they teach you the, the right and wrong, how to stay in between the lines and follow instructions and all this at the same time to make you feel like you can conquer the world. That's what, that's what good young dog trainers should be doing with young dogs. And that's what I would encourage you to do with, with your, your rebel child is, is quit looking at him as a rebel and start looking at it as what have I not done right? What have I skipped over? What, what do I need to do better for this dog to set him up for success later? Yeah, I think I'm having some of those reality checks now of, you know, can't, can't expect the same, same work out of them. And that comparison is truly the thief of joy. So being able to, to give her what she needs to, to become, you know, the, the best that she can, whatever that looks like in two, three, four more years. But yeah, my best friend from high school will laugh and tell you that if my second dog had been my first dog, that I'd have never been a, a dog trainer because <laughs> my second dog was, was hell on wheels. And, but again, same thing, learning the process and learning not to skip over all those little, those little details and, and the little steps are just, they're integral in the whole thing. Yeah. Well, to kind of recap your advice so far for people running started, like me in a couple of weeks here, or for somebody running their grand in a couple of weeks here, or, or whenever it, uh, they're going, is stop caring. Uh, just train. Uh, and... Stop caring. That's that's my biggest takeaway. I think is is when you walk to the line, don't care so much. See, at that point, at that point, I would I would tell you to remember not to be a sophomore in your understanding. So, being a sophomore actually breaks down to two Greek words: sopha, which means the love of, and the second word of is what we get the the root word that we get moron from. So, a sophomore actually translates to the love of idiocy. And so don't learn, don't listen to half of it and think you got it all. <laughs> they, uh, it truly, it's not that I don't want you to care. I want you to, I want you to put your care down and be more objective in, in, in your runs. I want you to not give you to, to strive in your runs, do everything you can to not give the judges something to judge. Now, that being said, the discussion we had about the difference between the handle in the area and to the, and to the area. Hoping is not a strategy. Going out there and kicking your dog off and hoping the dog comes back successfully does not constitute good handling. So there are times that you have to get involved and you have to give them something that, to judge. But if you, if you handle at the appropriate time, it could go in your favor. So it's, and the rule book says the same thing about marking started all the way to grand that a dog should proceed directly to the area and establish a hunt and retrieve the bird back to the handler. So it's read the rules and understand them. And ignorance is not an excuse. So once you have proceeded directly to the area to fall and established a hunt, it doesn't say that it has to do it all by itself. But 
That being said, I wouldn't go out there and handle in the area every time. Let the dog show that it's that it's capable of doing it on its own. But if you got a dog that you know doesn't like a checkdown bird and you, they got a really good checkdown bird in that test, I'm going to be prepared to to put my dog in the best possible situation to to come up with that checkdown bird. But if he identifies that bird and makes a, a circle in the area and is hunting the bird where he needs to be and gets that look in his eyes, I'm not going to let him go leave out of there and then handle. I'm going to catch him where I need to because I know that dog struggles on this concept. So it's just good. It's good strategy to have. You got to have your plan and you got to work your plan. And then you got to have a backup plan when your plan that you got goes all the pot because it didn't see the middle bird when the triple came out or, you know, there's, you got to have a backup plan and then a backup plan for your backup plan. But that's, that goes into to having, you know, a, a positive perspective and, and truly understanding what's going on and not getting caught up in the moment and going, Oh, my dog didn't see the middle bar. I sure hope he can find it. You know, that, that's, that is the beginning for a downfall right there. Yeah. I'm sure most people at some point have lined their dog on that mark a time or 12. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Stephen, I appreciate you taking the time and sitting down with us and, and having this fun little talk about the grand and, and just talking dog in general. Glad to be here. Hope, uh, hope we can help out anytime you need me. Thanks for listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast. Be sure to give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes.